I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the sirens. sirens. Today we're talking about Mildred Pierce, which is a 1945 uh, film noir directed by Mark- Michael Curtiz. It features jo- Joan Crawford, uh, Eve Arden, Anne Blythe, Jack Carson, Zachary Scott, and Bruce Bennett. It's based on a novel by James Kane, uh, and the music was composed by Max Steiner. The plot, which I'm sure we will get into in the course of our discussion, uh, is it, the plot is a little bit convoluted, um, but it, the film opens with the murder of Monty Barragan in a beach house along the Pacific Ocean. We follow his widow and restaurant mogul, Mildred Pierce, on a clue-riddled circuit from the house and finally to the police station. Um, and we meet an array of characters who play into the saga that's led to Barragon's murder. Faced with an investigating officer, uh, Mildred confesses to the murder and launches into her life story to reveal her motive. Twists and turns ensue, featuring badass businesswomen, spoiled teenagers, and some really badly behaved men. And I'm sure we'll unravel the rest of it as we're talking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one of my notes is, all of these men are trash. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> One of my notes is this is a movie about a men, a bunch of men trying to get a woman to do what they want. <laughs> oh, there's a lot, a lot to unpack with Mildred Pierce. So many things. <laughs> do you have any trivia before we get back? Um, yes, I do. So. I don't know how much you know about Joan Crawford's history and such, but some of that <laughs> comes up in this movie. But I, So I'll just... She had a reputation for being difficult to work with and <laughs> having rivalries with her female co-stars and or other women actors of the time. But according to Anne Blythe... She was actually lovely to work with in this movie. Um, It's rumored that Crawford helped her practice for her screen test so she could get the role. Joan Crawford went really method and actually had Anne slap her for real during that scene towards the end Uh (laughs) Um, when Mm -hmm. Anne Blythe wasn't going to do that. So, um, and Anne Blythe was nominated um, for an Academy Award for this role. So, some of that may be from Joan Crawford's mentorship. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the early scenes, there was a lot of tension between Michael Cortese and Joan Crawford, and he didn't actually want her in this role. Uh, it supposedly was offered to Betty Davis, and she turned it down, and like a couple of other mm-hmm. actresses turned it down. Um, but he, they had a ton of tension about her clothes in the movie because Joan Crawford was supposed to be a workaday woman, but she didn't want to appear um, anything less than glamorous. So she kept saying like, oh yeah, I got the clothes off the rack, but instead she'd have her tailor like change them so that they were flattering and made her look a lot better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And at one point it's said that he like ripped her blouse off to like try to prove that she was wearing shoulder pads underneath the clothes and we need to talk about the shoulder pads uh when we get to fashion oh yes don't worry (laughs) asterisk um so the movie was based on the novel Mildred Pierce by James M. Cain and after he saw the movie he sent Joan Crawford a signed first edition of the novel and the inscription read, To Joan Crawford, who brought Mildred Pierce to life just as I had always hoped she would be, and who has my lifelong gratitude. Um, wow. So that's an endorsement from the original storyteller. Uh, it's not bad. Yes. Uh, so Eve Arden also got an uh, Academy Award nomination for this. And for her and Anne Blythe, those were their only ever nominations. Um, oh. And Joan Crawford was nominated and won the Academy Award for Best Actress for this role. She wasn't at the award ceremony because she said she was home sick with pneumonia. But um, in her daughter's tell-all book about her mother's life, (laughs) her relationship with her mother, um, her daughter Christina says that she faked the illness because she didn't think she was going to win and she didn't want to be humiliated. 
Um, and that after she heard that she won the award, she immediately got up and did her makeup and put on her fanciest negligee to meet with the press. <laughs> her fanciest negligee. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. This I thought was interesting. William Faulkner contributed to the script, um, but his... Huh. His parts were not included in the final film version, but he wrote a scene that had Butterfly McQueen uh, consoling Joan Crawford and singing a gospel song. And he also added an elaborate voiceover narration um, and a lot of extra stuff about Mildred's restaurant. Um, that seems very fucking. I know, I was like, all of these things, <laughs> all of these things sound like, you know, his novels, so. Um, and he actually made Vita a more cold, calculating character than she was in the final version of the film. Just hard to imagine. Yeah, I was like, what well, else could you do? <laughs> Just shoots her father. Oh, <laughs> uh, this is really funny. Um, Shirley Temple was originally considered for the part <laughs> of Vita. Can no. you imagine that? Nope. <laughs> um, so that's what I have for trivia. And who did you bio for this movie? Um, so I bioed Anne Blythe, who you mentioned a little bit in your trivia. Um, she was born uh, August 16th, 1928, in Mount Kisco, New York. Her parents separated when she was uh, pretty young, and she and her mother and her sister moved to a tiny apartment in New York City, um, where her mom took in ironing to um, pay the bills. Um, she got started performing in uh, radio shows in New York very early on, making her first appearance on a radio show when she was just five years old. Uh, her first acting role on, was on Broadway, you know, as you do when you live in New York City, um, in uh, Lillian Hellman's play uh, Watch on the Rhine, uh, which la lasted a long time. That was a pretty long run, and after the New York run, the play went on tour, and while um, they were performing at the Biltmore Theater in Los Angeles, she was offered a contract with Universal Studios. I thought you would find this particular fact about her interesting. So Anne Blythe's name is spelled A-N-N, Blythe. Um, but when she began her acting career, <clears throat> she initially well, chose to be billed as Anne with an E. Oh. Um, and then, I guess to make it more glamorous, you know, but soon after she um, went to Hollywood and started with Universal Studios, she reverted back to her actual spelling of the name, which is just A-N-N. -N. I thought uh, Anne Cuth Shirley Cuthbert might um, have something to say about that. I mean, Anne um, with an E definitely is more romantic. It's just, yeah. that's just a fact. Very. I mean, if you're gonna, if your last name is Blythe, you really should have your first name be Anne with an E. Agreed. <laughs> um, she made her film debut in 1944 um, in a teenage musical called um, "Chip Off the Old Block" when she was 16 years old. She those first films that she was in um, in the 40s sort of were very similar to that. These like teenage uh, musicals. She, so she was, at that point, she was under contract with uh, Universal Studios. She um, was loaned out to Warner Brothers to, to appear in uh, Mildred Pierce in this role um, as uh, Vita that was against her, this type that she got a lot of praise for that portrayal. And like you said, she received a nomination for the Academy Award. Like directly after the movie wrapped, she sustained a broken back while she was tobogganing um, in Snow Valley, and um, that kind of destroyed her ability to, like, capitalize on the success of the movie. It was only a temporary destruction because she, um, once she recovered, she she was in a lot of, a lot of movies um, in every major studio um, at MGM and Universal and Paramount and... Universal again, and then Universal uh, put her on suspension because she refused a lead role in the movie um, Abandoned, and that didn't, that suspension did very little to stall her career um, because she just kept um, working with most of the major studios throughout the early 1950s, 
and moved then from Universal to MGM in late 1953 and just kept kept working until she eventually decided she was done working in movies and wanted to work in musical theater and summer stack and television um, and, you know, continued to work. And she um, worked up until ni- the 1980s um, when she appeared in um, episodes of Quincy, Emmy, and Murder, She Wrote um, in 1985. Oh. And 1985 was the year she officially retired from acting. Wow. Um, yes. By then, she had also become the spokesperson for Hostess Cupcakes. And <laughs> That's a sweet gig. Yes, it is. It's fun. <laughs> um, she, in the 1950s, she had, or 1953, sorry, she married um, a doctor named uh, James McNulty, who was the brother of a singer named Dennis Day. Um, and the internet says that after her marriage, she took a reprieve from her career to raise their five children. But if you look at her filmography, there's, you don't see, like, any kind of reprieve. She just worked continuously um so somewhat of a somewhat of an amazing worker bee there was no break in there um she and her husband were both devout catholics and they were named um lady and knight of the holy sepulcher um in a ceremony um that was um I guess that's something that cardinals do um cardinals always be doing that yeah, and just, you know, a ceremony to give people ladies and knights. Um, and her husband died in 2007, but Anne Blythe herself is still alive. Whoa. It's hard so, to... I found it hard to um, place her... I mean, I know she was playing a teenager, but a lot of the way that she was styled in the movie made her look very grown up. So yeah. she felt like she was older to me. Yeah, she seemed a lot older than 16, I thought. Yeah. Who did you buy? Oh, oh you bioed Joan <laughs> So I bioed Joan Crawford. I'm going to make a disclaimer, which is that th- the world is is ripe with information of uh, and rumors unconfirmed about Joan Crawford's life. I'm mostly going to focus on her career. Um, if you have an interest in <laughs> Joan Crawford's personal life, you don't have to look hard. So <laughs> I was very disturbed. I mean, I knew some of the stuff about Joan Crawford. I'm not a huge fan of hers or anything. So I, it's not like I like go out of my way to find stuff, but it found me. And I just, I know a lot of the stuff, but even just doing the deep dive, I was like, oh my gosh, this is pretty difficult stuff so yeah um she was born lucille Fay lesur in 1904 in san antonio texas the youngest child of thomas lesur and anna bell johnson and mm. her father abandoned the family a couple months before she was born so Oof. yeah and her mother remarried henry casson they moved to Oklahoma, where her stepfather ran the Ramsey Opera House. So Joan Crawford was exposed to vaudeville from the time she was a tiny child. Um, and she had a tumultuous childhood, didn't make it very far in school, um, but she was always interested in performing. And as a teenager, she began her career as a dancer in a traveling theater company, and then she debuted as a chorus girl on Broadway. Uh, She signed a motion picture contract with MGM in 1925, and credited as Lucille Lasseur, her first film was The Lady of the Night in 1925, where she was the body double for Norma Shearer. What? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we we bioed Norma Shearer in a previous episode and she was like one of the she was like top billing for MGM um and later became Mm -hmm. a big rival of Joan Crawford's (laughs) um Crawford appeared a number of small roles that year and MGM publicity head Pete Smith saw potential in her so he organized a name the star contest in movie weekly 
Um, and that's how they changed her name and she became Joan Crawford. Oh. The public literally what? named her. <laughs> and uh, I didn't see anything wrong with Lucille Lasseur. Like, it's, I think it sounds fine. And she apparently didn't really like Joan Crawford as a name, but... When the when the uh, fans speak, yeah, you have to go with it. Um, so she had only done smaller parts up until this point, and she wanted to make it big. So she did a big self promotional campaign and entered lots of contests and did networking and went to a lot of events um, to advance her career. And then she started being cast in increasingly prominent roles until she played Diana Medford in Our Dancing Daughters in 1928. And that's when she really got catapulted into stardom. Um, she was known as an it girl of the 1920s, and, like, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote about her, and she was, like, on par with the, like, iconic names you think of as the flapper girls. Um In the 1930s, she successfully transitioned to talkies, uh, she was very self-conscious about her Southwest accent, so she practiced her diction yeah. relentlessly um, until she lost the accent. And you know, she did she did well in the talkies, and her fame grew until she rivaled and then outlasted her MGM colleagues Norma Shearer and Greta Garbo. So. She she ended up actually sort of eclipsing them, but she was yeah very uh, competitive and mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so she didn't have good relationships with a lot of the other Joan Crawford competitive. <laughs> <laughs> Newsflash, <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> and uh, if if you ever just want to laugh, um, you should look up Joan Crawford quotes, because she had ways of just making amazing things <laughs> <of> people. <laughs> um, she often played hardworking young women who found romance and success. That was sort of her type, and she, she said she came from, like, a working-class background. I think she identified with those characters. Those roles were well-received by the Depression-era audiences, and she became one of the highest-paid women in the United States. And mm -hmm. in 1932, she appeared with Greta Garbo, John and Lionel Barrymore, and Wallace Beery in Grand Hotel, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Um, and she was frequently paired with Clark Gable, and they were really popular together. Which is, f like, I don't... I have not seen one of the movies where they're together, but like I don't, I can't imagine chemistry between them. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, her fur, her her films were really popular into the mid nineteen thirties, but by nineteen thirty seven, her popularity was waning, and she was declared box office poison, along with so many of our favorite stars. <laughs> yeah. Proof. That's the like. That's how you know they're gonna go on to become uh, big stars. Yeah. Um, so the women in 1939, which is another movie we did on a different episode, that was considered her comeback. In the 1940s, she moved to Warner Brothers, and in 1945, she won the Academy Award for Best Actress for Mildred Pierce. And then she was again nominated for Best Actress for Possessed in 1947 and Sudden Fear in 1952. And she continued to act in film and te television throughout the 1950s and 60s, and then again had a big hit with uh, the highly successful horror film Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, oh, yeah. where she starred alongside Betty Davis, who, you know, famously they were rivals, and there's been a lot written. There was that series recently, Feud, that was about them. Um, oh, Yeah. About their feet. Yes, I read some crazy stuff about, <laughs> about that. that the, the thing that stuck out to me was that, uh, so Betty Davis was nominated for a, an Academy Award for her role in that movie, and I guess mm -hmm. Joan Crawford didn't want her to get it if she didn't, I don't know, she... <laughs> She did not want Betty Davis to win, so she contacted all the other actresses who were nominated and said, if you can't be there to accept it, I'll accept the award in your place. And then Betty Davis says that Joan Crawford campaigned against her winning 
for that movie. And then I forget who actually won, but it was someone who wasn't there. And then Joan Crawford accepted it <laughs> instead of <laughs> I mean, like, the sheer pettiness of that is just unparalleled. Oh my god. Um, so there's a lot of stuff about her personal life, too. She married four times. Her first three marriages ended in divorce, and the last ended with the death of her husband, Alfred Steele. And she adopted five children, one of whom was later reclaimed by birth parents. Her relationship with the two older children, Christina and Christopher, was really contentious. And Christina was the one who wrote the tell-all memoir, uh, Mommy Dearest which was mm-hmm. then later made into a movie with the famous, like, beating with the hanger and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. it's still debated, you know, how much of that was true. And uh, there's some people say that they corroborate it. Some people say that, you know, that's not the Joan Crawford I knew. So um, you can take what you will from that. But she did write her two older children out of the will. <laughs> Um, for what that's worth. And in 1970, she retired from the screen. Following a public appearance in 1974, she completely withdrew from public life and became a recluse until her death in 1977. So that's Joan Crawford. Great. Joan Crawford in a nutshell. What's your take on her? Like, have you watched a lot of her movies? Do you like her? I, I feel like I haven't watched a lot of her movies I can't remember what other things I've seen before we saw, before we watched The Women. I assume that I had seen things before her, but, you know, it was watching The Women that I, like, really had a sense of her. But then in watching this movie, I, I, yeah, I feel like part of my journey with this podcast is that I'm realizing and learning that there are other good actors besides Ingrid Bergman. (laughs) What? Um, No. I know, it's a shock. Um, it's a shock to me. So I, you know, I, I feel like, if, you know, this whole time uh, in watching the movie, I, you know, knew ahead of time, obviously, that she had won the Academy Award for it. And I spent a lot of the movie going, oh, yeah, this is, this is an award-winning performance. This definitely deserves it, I think. So, yeah, I guess. And I had heard of the, heard about the uh, feud with Betty Davis, of course, I don't know that I, like, in that feud, I don't know that I'm on a side. I think oh, the fact that... I'm on a, a side. Which side <laughs> are you Betty on? Betty Davis. Yeah, I mean, like, the whole, like, if you beat your... Like, I'm just gonna say it. If you beat your child, like, I I have no sympathy for that. So, yeah. yeah uh-huh. I, guess, I, guess I'm, I guess I'm on Betty Davis's team. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I think... So, yes, I think the podcast does, like, open my mind and heart to other actors. Like, I have totally come around to be, like, Betty Davis is probably the best actor I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Like, that's how I feel about her now. And it's not to say that I'm, like, oh, I'm obsessed with Betty Davis or, like, she's the best ever or I really like her. It's more just, like, you're a star. And I don't know. I don't feel... Like, I found Joan Crawford compelling to watch, but I still think Betty Davis is a better actor. Yeah, I think I I think I agree with that. Like, you could, I could tell that, uh, she, that Joan Crawford was, like, an A star, but Betty Davis is an A-plus star. Yeah. And, I mean, the really good thing you can say for both of them is they took a wide breadth of roles. Mm-hmm. Like, they weren't yeah. playing just one type of character. Um, and actually, yeah. one of the things I read was that the Mildred Pierce role was offered to a bunch of other actresses, and nobody wanted to take it because they they were supposed to be the mother of a teenage daughter, and none of them would admit to that, <laughs> like, being that age. <laughs> so, like, just the fact that Joan Crawford wanted this role shows yeah. that she was kind of willing to take a risk, which I think mm-hmm. is admirable. Had you seen this movie before? Yes, I had. Like, a a long time ago. I didn't remember all the details of the plot. And it was remade into a miniseries 
a while right. back with Kate Winslet, but I didn't watch that. I mean, I like Kate Winslet, but I don't really want to ruin the uh, the effect this movie had on me by watching some other version of it. Well, yeah, so I want to hear your um, initial impressions of it. Did you know anything about it before you watched it? I mean, I read the back of the DVD case from the library. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, sure. But as it was, un- I didn't, that had very little plot points in it, so I didn't really know. And as it was unfolding, I mean, even just from the very first shot, like literal, like the first gunshot, I was like, oh, I, it's interesting that we know from the beginning that Mildred Pierce kills Berrigan. I guess I wonder what's going to happen. And of course, like by the end of the movie, the police know and we know that, you know, Bear, uh, Mildred Pierce doesn't do it. It's uh, Vita. Spoiler. <laughs> um... Which, you know, is one of those, like, beautiful narrative devices where, like, it makes a lot of sense that Vita does it, and then Mildred Pierce is like, okay, fine. Like, this is the last time I'm going to bat for you and your brattiness. And when it doesn't work, she's just like, I like I don't have anything else with in me. But there's, like, a surprising but inevitable ending, um, to use Flannery O'Connor's phrase. Yeah, that's um, true. <clears throat> Yeah, I think the opening is really great with, you know, someone being murdered. I liked how the film was sort of like a weird combination of like a noir, but also Mm -hmm. a family drama. And there was like a little bit of music in there for like atmospherically, you know, that like there's like a like musical scene between the two daughters. Yeah. Where the younger daughter is like singing them like... Caribbean song. Yeah. Um, and Vita does the, like, dance or singing number later oh, right, on, yeah. too. Yeah, it's got everything. I think the thing that didn't make sense to me and was just that, like, why, why was she just willing to give Vita... Why was she so fixated on her specifically? Because she didn't seem to feel the same way about Kay, and like. Well, I think it was like it it, it ballooned after Kay died, didn't it? Well, but the here's my complaint about this movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are a lot of things that don't make a lot of rational there, sense in this movie. The dialogue when very dramatic things happen, there's no reaction about them. Like it's just like oh. My daughter's dead. Duh. Like, <laughs> yes. and then like the detectives are like, "Your husband's dead," and she's like, "Really?" And then they just move on. Like, it's not nobody reacts to anything. No. Well, she doesn't react really. She has like the only time she reacts is when someone slaps her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I would say the thing that doesn't make any sense to me is that like, because <clears throat> even before Kay dies, Mister Pierce, what is his first name, comes. You know, and they're, like, they have that scene in the kitchen, and they decide that they're getting a divorce. And, like you said, there's, like, no emotional response. Like, they're deciding that they're get, they're separating. And she, like, she does cry once he leaves, but I was like, like, aren't you guys adults? So that you would, like, work this out? Like, they're, because, like, in later scenes, you know, they're, like, so loving to each other. Yeah, that relationship made no sense to me, because in that opening scene, he's like, yeah, I'm cheating on you, I have a mistress, I'm not even going to try and hide it, it's ongoing, and you can't do anything about it, also, I'm not going to get a job, don't bother me, where's my dinner, like, right, (laughs) right, like, uh, but then ten minutes later, they're like, oh, we're best friends, and we're talking about, like, our kid who's sick. Yeah, it reminded me of those... Like, I feel like you see this in the movies. Maybe this is, like, a thing that happens in Hollywood but doesn't happen, like, in regular life. But they, you see that trope of, like, oh, we're divorced and we really, like... But we're still very good friends. Yeah, and we still, like, love each other and, like, think that we're good people. And there's, like, a certain amount of, like, longing or something there. But that, like, Mm -hmm. no one ever actually tries to address the problems. And, yeah, it seemed like... I was like, go to a marriage counselor. Like, obviously, like, these are things that can be overcome. Um, But I didn't really agree with Mildred that, like, he seemed like such a jerk that later on when she was like, I have so much love and respect for him. And when he was... Yeah, he didn't seem that, like, redeemable as a character. No, there wasn't a single good man in the entire movie. 
There were no good men. There were not. Except for, like, the police officers. No, they were bad, too. I have notes about how bad they were. Oh. They were terrible. What are your notes about how bad? Um, Oh, I guess they, like, they, like, lead her on for the, the entire movie to get her to, like, basically confess and lie. And then they're like, oh, yeah, we already know Vita's the killer. Yeah, I wrote, this detective is a nut job. (laughs) (laughs) And also, the cop in the, when she's going to throw herself into the water. Oh, He was so uncompassionate and terrible. I mean, I found myself wondering, is this like a, is this a tactic that the, the LAPD have, have determined is like useful in getting people that not jump off bridges because this yeah like <laughs> let's harass the them and tell them that we're t- that they're terrible that'll help stop them from what <laughs> yeah right i don't want to go swimming um, I, <laughs> so don't jump into the water i have another note that the cops shot at wally just upon sight like when wally yeah. was leaving the house they yeah. literally just like on on patrol saw him and they just well no they're called to the house well, if even so, they literally just saw him leaving and they shot at him. Like, that cannot be how things are supposed to go. No, that seems very unreasonable. I mean, it's not the way... Well, there's... We, we know that those things we can happen, talk, but... Yeah, we can talk about brut- police brutality. Um, but they were like, oh, a vague yeah. man who we don't know who it is is Let's running. Let's shoot him. Let's mm-hmm. just shoot at him. Great idea. No, no redeemable Ben in this movie. No, and it's kind of like, yeah, they all, I mean, she also is using people, like, it, it seemed like there were a lot of themes in the movie of female ambition being thwarted and, like, also mm-hmm. exploited by men. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, and that the whole, <clears throat> there's that whole business thing at the end where, you know, it turns out. Berrigan doesn't have any money, and so he, like, does he, like, schemes with Wally to, you know, screw Mildred out of her part of the restaurant that the three of them all have, like, shares in. So he's, like, going against his own wife, um, so that he can get some money out of it, so that, you know, he can go on his merry way. And doesn't even care about her. Yeah. And she's like, I've been, I worked my way up. Like, this is my restaurant. (laughs) Yeah. She, I mean, she did seem like she had bad taste in men. Like, from yes. the time that Monty, like, appeared in the movie, I was like, this Joker? Like, this is who you're gonna be in love with? He, he like, all yeah. he was doing was, like, ogling her. It just... He, well, he gives her he gives her a, a restaurant, a place for her restaurant. So, I guess he does that. But then he takes it away from her. <laughs> and he sleeps with her daughter. Like, that's not cool. What's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> That's also a trope that mm-hmm. happens in a lot of movies and stories now. Like, the stepdaughter steals the stepfather. I don't need any more of that storyline in my life. That doesn't no. need to exist. Yeah. That cannot exist. <laughs> Please. <laughs> it was so obvious, though, that she was going after him. Like, I was like, how mm-hmm. does Mildred not notice? Like, they're hanging out together all the time. Her daughter adores him. He's, like, dancing with her, taking her to parties. What What does she think is happening? Right. Well, and she's borrowing all this money that she's clearly giving to him. And he lies to her. Well, I don't know if it's a lie, but he, like, when they give, when Mildred gives Vita a car for her birthday... He, she, like, thanks Berrigan more than she thanks her mother because he's like, oh, I picked this out. And she just is all over him. And he's such a, like, ugh, he's such a sleazeneck about it. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, and where do you think her, where do you think that Vita's obsession with money comes from? That's a really good question. Because when they're, like, at the beginning of the movie, they live in a, like, relatively... What I'm assuming is a relatively, like, modest... I mean, it's a nice house. I mean, they had a maid the whole time, so... Oh, yeah, just kidding. They are wealthy enough to have a maid, so what else does she want? Um, I don't know. I mean, it seems like... I think Mildred mentions this in the, like, the fight with um, her husband in the kitchen... 
where she she like mentions something about how she never had money growing up and so she never wants like Vita to know what that's like. Um and so maybe she just like even before we like see the real like monster that that spoiling has like created, we're being told, oh, you know, the reason why she's spoiled is because you know, Mildred Pierce never had anything very nice growing up. Yeah, I can... I thought that made sense, but there there was, like, peculiarities about Vita's... Like, it wasn't just that she wanted money, because she was taking her mom's money, but she also told her mom that she was trash because she worked for the money. But, yeah. like, she didn't care enough about that to be like, oh, I'm not going to take this money because I don't approve of how you got it by, like, having a job. Yeah. So that didn't, that particular, like, it seemed like she just really wanted to be a blue blood. Yeah. I guess. Well, I'm probably, like, hanging around with Berrigan didn't help because Berrigan's, like, <clears throat> Berrigan, like, won't work and won't do, you know, you know, he thinks that working for a living is, like, beneath him. Yeah. Probably didn't help to be around the Playboy. Ugh. Mildred should never have gotten involved with him. Shouldn't have been taken in by the free property. There's no free lunch. I could kind of understand why Vita would hate her mother after, though, that Mildred kicked her out like that. Because um, I think she was only supposed to be, like, a teenager, and she was like, get out yeah. of my house. And yeah. then she... It's, which is unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> And she was, like, working as a cabaret singer or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, when she's supposed to be, like, 16 or 17 or something. Yeah, because I think it's pretty hard to come back from that if you, like, kick your kid out while they're still a minor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That seems like a hard thing. <laughs> um, I mean, like, if you take that part away of, like, the daughter's contempt for her... There mm-hmm. is a whole part of the movie that's just like a success story, like a businesswoman success story. <laughs> yeah, that she like walks into a um a restaurant and is like I need a job and Eve Arden's character is like sure, I need I need somebody who will do the work. And you know, she learns the skill and then decides that she wants to like go to the next level. Um, succeeds at it and you know, like is a restaurant mogul. I mean that's a that's a triumphant storyline. Yeah, and like she franchised and it seemed really cool to me anyway yeah. that she would, you know, not have any experience even working in a restaurant and then rise to that level. I mean I kinda wanted to go to Mildred's. Yes. Uh, with all the cool <laughs> diner talk and stuff. Yeah. What was like um heck yes. <laughs> at one point someone says uh, they want Adam and Eve on a raft, and I didn't know what that was. What is that? I don't what know. is Adam and Eve on a raft? I don't what know. does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> I'm Googling this. As I'm just... <laughs> I don't know if that's the kind of thing I want to Google. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You don't know what's going to come up. <laughs> I want to take this opportunity to say. Oh, it's two eggs on toast. Oh. That's not as exciting as I was anticipating. Um, I really liked Ida. Her friend. I, yes. I, we've seen Eve Arden, a co- I think just one other time. She's just, discovering her, like, earlier work, aside from Greece, um, has been, like, a fun part of our <laughs> podcast. Yeah, she was really funny. Actually, like, despite this being a dark movie overall, there were a lot of funny lines, and it was, uh... It was very dry. Like, people were constantly making sort of dark jokes and then just continuing on without acknowledging them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, can we just... Discuss- I want... That's a, that's the kind of sidekick we all need. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about Wally. Oh, God. Do we have to? Because he's... I literally wrote in my notes, Wally is such an asshole. He is, and, but... But then I was kind of having, like, a moral crisis about Wally, so it's... No, he's an asshole. Okay. You need to, What's like, the crisis about you, him? I need to have a come-to-Jesus moment, because... So here's the thing. He was uh-huh. terrible, but he actually uh-huh. did help Mildred a lot. 
I mean, more than he other helped people. Mildred get the get the restaurant to begin with, but then he screwed her over with her husband, and also like screwed over or not screwed like went behind Mildred's back with Vita when Vita was getting a divorce from her uh, husband that she had for twenty minutes, and like. <clears throat> When it was she, he was in cahoots with her to like get the extra ten thousand ten thousand dollars by lying about being pregnant. I don't know. He has no. There's nothing redeeming. No, I mean I don't think he's a good character, but I just thought he actually had a consistent moral. Co- he was one of the only people who had a consistent <laughs> moral. Code. Consistently bad yeah. code. It was a bad code. code, but it was a code that was like, you know, ultimately. I do what's in my best business interests, but I will, like, try to help you with what falls within that line. But, like, his behavior yeah, actually... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I would say it's a moral code. I would say it's a business <laughs> okay, code. Okay, it is. I mean... It's like... It, it's not necessarily... Because he's not doing anything based on whether it's, like, good and right. It's based on whether or not he can make up some money about yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. I guess I just thought that, in some ways, he... He actually, like, helped that family out a little bit. Like, he did bad things. But, like, he showed up in ways more than, like, Vita's father did to, like, yeah. intervene and stuff. And Although Vita's father was going to, like, take the murder rap for That's true, which was, like, and a minor plot point. <laughs> <laughs> what was that about? Yeah, I don't. So I'm not on the record saying Wally's a good person. I just want to say that, like, I thought his behavior was consistent and made sense in a movie. In a movie with a lot of terrible men, he was not the worst terrible man. He no, he wasn't the worst, but he wasn't the least terrible either. <laughs> but there were no good. There men. were no good men um, in the opening. <laughs> Whatever the first scene with him was where he comes over Mildred's house, like, right after he finds out about the divorce, and immediately he's, like, undressing her. It was so awful. Not okay. (laughs) In a different world, Mildred wouldn't have needed a man, and she could just be a successful businesswoman. That's right. And everything would have been fine. Unfortunately, that's not the world we live in. No, it's not. Um... I thought it was so me. It was actually very Joan Crawford like. The scene where like Vita told their maid to put on the waitress outfit. It was just like such a mean. Yes. On multiple levels, it was mean, but like to. It was like borderline cruel. Yes, exactly, and just be like, "Well, I figured that's the only reason it could be here." Like, just uh, I hated that. Have a heart, Vita. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature. Beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher. What can I do but give my heart to you? Should we talk about the costumes? You mean, and by costumes you mean the shoulder pads. Yes. I mean, uh, I feel like... With some few exceptions. The shoulder pads were actually, like, frequently coming up in her biography. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. (laughs) Joan Crawford equals shoulder pads. Does she not have, like, her own natural, like, shoulders? I think it was just the style, but she took it to... So, the scene with the fur coat, it literally yes. looked like she had a pole stuck through the arms of that coat. Yeah. Yes. Well, Jen was reminding me that that is that, like, I think that outfit in particular is an outfit that um, Carol Burnett spoofed on her TV show. Oh. Like, and made it very, very shouldery. Which makes me want to watch the, uh, the part of the skit again. We should share a clip of it. By the time this episode airs, there will be a tweet. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm not a fan of the big shoulder pads. There were some things she wore that I liked, though. Um, when she was getting ready to open the restaurant, she had a cute, uh, skirt with suspenders. Did you Mm -hmm. notice that? I thought that looked really cute. And in the courtroom scene, she was wearing, uh, like, almost like a top hat. 
mm-hmm. that looked really good yeah. too. I made a note about the angel brooch that she wears in a couple of scenes. That's obviously meant to be like spectacularly like ostentatious, and she wears it on a like black dress or what appears to be a black or dark colored dress that just makes it really stand out. And, <clears throat> you know, it like really drew my eye to it. I didn't even um, notice that. I have to go back. Oh, and really? It. Yeah, she wears it in a couple of scenes. Um, I think it's an angel. It, like, it's hard to. It's very kind of an abstract shape. I wonder what it symbolizes. Kay. <laughs> Poor Kay. Kay was the best I character know. in this movie, and she died. I know. And then she dies. <laughs> Nothing else really stood out to me of the costumes. Maybe Vita's performance outfit with all the sequins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was like, flashy, but it made her look very young. Like it felt weird. Like mm-hmm. all these sailors were whistling at her, whistling at her. I think maybe it was how we were supposed to feel as like the audience that we're supposed to feel like, oh, she's just a kid, and that's why her mom wants to protect her. Yeah, I think overall Mildred's style was just very severe, and that's kind of how mm-hmm. I think of Joan Crawford as being that way. Like, even her face seems, like, extreme. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. So what about social justice? Well, we talked a little bit about just, like, women in business and women, like, as head of households like making the money which i think is connected to an idea of obviously if she had the opportunity or if it was like normal for her to like work outside the home from the beginning there might not have been an issue that meant that she had to like make pies and cakes from her kitchen to like make ends meet when her husband parted ways with his business partner i feel like that's a trope too of women in tv and movies like having to make a you know, they make pies to, like, make extra money. <laughs> it's a lot of pies. And it doesn't, she she tries to make, like, 60 pies at one point in, like, one night. I'm like, lady, what are you doing? <laughs> what kind of pies are these that you're making 60? Yeah, do you have, like, five other ovens hidden somewhere in your house? Some, somewhere in this teeny tiny house. <laughs> I did write down, you know how, like, every college paper is like, the American dream becomes a nightmare. Um, yes. I think there could be a certain... <laughs> is that what this movie is yes, about? The American it is. Comes to it is what it's about. Because I think Vita is... Vita is America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, greed begets greed, basically. Mm-hmm. And she's never satisfied mm-hmm. with anything. And she just wants yeah. money. And she's, like, just openly like, I need money! Yeah. For no reason. I think even Mildred Pierce is like, what do you need all this money for? And she's like, I just need it. I want it. <laughs> One thing that was a little ridiculous, and I'm getting off topic, is just that they already were... So they, there was the first house they showed, then they were in another nicer house, and mm-hmm. Vita was still like, our house is trash. And I was like, "Are you? do you see your house? Like, this is yeah, like have you mansion. been in other houses in your life? Yeah. This is a mansion, and you have staff, and like... This yeah. is ridiculous. <laughs> and you have staff. <laughs> so it just made me think about capitalism and relentless greed and how it never ends. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. What did you think in terms of Bechtel? There were some conversations with Eve Arden's character and um, uh, Joan Crawford's character where they're talking about, they talk about how bad and like heelish men are. They're talking about men, but not in, in a way that is like, oh, we need to marry them and, you know, for our own ability to advance in the world. They're like, men are an obstacle to <laughs> to our success. And if only men were not as big of jerks as they are, we might be able to succeed. Or if we didn't need them to succeed, you know, the world might be a better place. Yeah, I think that it passes because there's a lot of strong female roles. I mean, not strong. It's, there's there's a lot of prominent female roles in the movie. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they interact, and a lot of the interaction is not about relationships. It's about, mm-hmm. like, money and business and family stuff. Yeah, and the primary relationship in this movie isn't, like, a romantic relationship. It's between a mother and a daughter. Yeah. I wish it was more positive. Like, I feel like 
for this time period, you get very few movies where that's the case, that the primary relationship is between two women, and then yeah. of those movies, like, a very high percentage of them um, is, like, a contentious relationship, <laughs> because mm-hmm. women can't get along, as we all know. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I guess if they just got along, there wouldn't be any movie either, because there wouldn't be any Well, conflict. they could get into other, like, <coughs> scrapes. That's right. They could be solving community hijinks. <laughs> like, I didn't really love Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, but I really liked that there was, like, a female friendship at the center of it. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's a good point. So, what rating would you give? You know, I have struggled with this, because I feel like I want to give it a rating, but I feel the pressure of our five-star rating for All About Eve, and I don't know if this is, like contributes to the rivalry, but I maybe want to give it a 4.75. Whoa. 4.5? Well, I don't know. You should stand by it, but that's a lot higher than <laughs> I'm giving it. Are you woeing it? How are you giving it? <laughs> Well, you're going to not like my rating. (laughs) No, I mean, let me say, my rating is based almost entirely on just that, like, the narrative arc of it. That it, like, it starts in one place, and then we, like, move backwards in time, and eventually we get back to a place where the ending is slightly different than what you believe at the beginning, or what I believed at the beginning. Yeah. That's true. I think the construction of the movie is really good. Like, the storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I... Yeah, and there are, like, technical things. Yeah, this, like, the storytelling of, like, like the camera shots and angles and things I thought were really effective. So what I, I just it? viewed it as more <laughs> subjective in that, you know, I think, it, I think it's a good movie, but I don't really enjoy it. And this was yeah. a rewatch for me, and I sure. definitely was like, well, I don't think I would watch this again. Cause it's just it's hmm. it's a tough watch. It's, it, yeah, it's it dark. Is a tough There's watch. no one yeah. to identify with or root for. It's it's actually mm-hmm. very like I f- it feels like it could be made now mm-hmm. as like a contemporary thing because it's all everyone's flawed and like stabbing each other. It's like Succession basically. Yeah. But but that all being said, I didn't really enjoy it. So I was going to give it a three, but now I'm thinking. Maybe I should make it like a three point five. You're talking me down, and I'm talking you up. Wait, maybe I should just own it and say three. That's fair. And we've disagreed before, Emily. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's making me realize that I I really like the writing in the noirs. Yeah, it's just really tight and like yeah, you can see like conflict and resolution and like people's mm-hmm. motivations and stuff. So um, yeah. I wouldn't mind if we did some more. Noirs. And we are recording this very shortly before Halloween, so it felt appropriate. So, do you know what our next movie is? No. (laughs) (laughs) Our next movie (laughs) is also on theme for the holidays, and we're doing It's a Wonderful Life. Back to Jimmy Stewart. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter, at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.